Hi, everybody. Carla here. Thanks for tuning in for another episode of Carla Reads the Classics. Let's continue with E. Lockhart's We Were Liars. Today, we start at Chapter 50. Mirren has been getting ill more and more often. She gets up late, paints her nails, lies in the sun, and stares at pictures of African landscapes in a big coffee table book. But she won't snorkel, won't sail, won't play tennis or go to Edgartown. I bring her jelly beans from New Claremont. Mirren loves jelly beans. Today, she and I lie out on the tiny beach. We read magazines I stole from the twins and eat baby carrots. Mirren has headphones on. She keeps listening to the same song over and over on my iPhone. Our youth is wasted. We will not waste it. Remember my name, cause we made history. Na 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 na, na na na. I poke Mirren with a carrot. What? You have to stop singing or I can't be responsible for my actions. Mirren turns to me, serious, pulls out the earbuds. Can I tell you something, Katie? Sure. About you and Gat. I heard you two come downstairs last night. So? I think you should leave him alone. What? It's going to end badly and mess everything up. I love him, I say. You know, I've always loved him. You're making things hard for him, harder than they already are. You're going to hurt him. That's not true. He'll probably hurt me. Well, that could happen too. It's not a good idea for you guys to be together. Don't you see I would rather be hurt by Gat than be closed off from him? I say, sitting up. I'd a million times rather live and risk and have it all end badly than stay in the box I've been in for the past two years. It's a tiny box, Marin. Me and Mummy. Me and my pills. Me and my pain. I don't want to live there anymore. A silence hangs in the air. I've never had a boyfriend. Marin blurts. I look into her eyes. There are tears. What about Drake Loggerhead? What about the yellow roses and the sexual intercourse? I ask. She looks down. I lied. Why? You know how when you come to Beechwood, it's a different world. You don't have to be who you are back home. You can be somebody better, maybe. I nod. The first day you came back, I noticed Gat. He looked at you like you were the brightest planet in the galaxy. He did? I want someone to look at me that way so much, Katie, so much. And I didn't mean to, but I found myself lying. I'm sorry. I don't know what to say. I take a deep breath. Marin snaps. Don't gasp, okay? It's fine. It's fine if I never have a boyfriend at all. It's fine if not one person ever loves me, all right? It's perfectly tolerable. Mummy's voice calls from somewhere by New Claremont. Cadence, can you hear me? I yell back. What do you want? The cook is off today. I'm starting lunch. Come slice tomatoes. In a minute. I sigh and look at Mirren. I have to go. She doesn't answer. I pull my hoodie on and trudge up the path to New Claremont. In the kitchen, Mummy hands me a special tomato knife and starts to talk. Natter, natter, you're always on the tiny beach. Natter, natter, you should play with the littles. Granddad won't be here forever. Do you know you have a sunburn? I slice and slice a basketful of strangely shaped heirloom tomatoes. They are yellow, green, and smoky red. 
My third week on island is ticking by and a migraine takes me out for two days, or maybe three, I can't tell. The pills in my bottle are getting low, though I filled my prescription before we left home. I wonder if Mummy is taking them. Maybe she has always been taking them. Or maybe the twins have been coming to my room again, lifting things they don't need. Maybe they're users. Or maybe I am taking more than I know, popping extra in a haze of pain for getting my last dose. I am scared to tell Mummy I need more. When I feel stable, I come to cuddle down again. The sun hovers low in the sky. The porch is covered with broken bottles. Inside, the ribbons have fallen from the ceiling and lie twisted on the floor. The dishes in the sink are dry and encrusted. The quilts that cover the dining table are dirty. The coffee table is stained with circular marks from mugs of tea. I find the liars clustered in Marin's bedroom, all looking at the Bible. Scrabble word argument, says Marin as soon as I enter. She closes the book. Gat was right as usual. You're always effing right, Gat. Girls don't like that in a guy, you know. The Scrabble tiles are scattered across the great room floor. I saw them when I walked in. They haven't been playing. What did you guys do the past few days? I ask. Oh, God, says Johnny, stretching out on Marin's bed. I forget already. It was 4th of July, says Marin. We went to supper at New Claremont, and then everyone went out in the big motorboat to see the vineyard fireworks. Today we went to the Nantucket donut shop, says Gat. They never go anywhere, ever, never see anyone. Now, while I've been sick, they went everywhere, saw everyone. Downy Flake, I say. That's the name of the donut shop. Yeah, they're the most amazing donuts, says Johnny. You hate cake donuts. Of course, says Mirren, but we didn't get the cake. We got glazed twists. And Boston cream, says Gat. And jelly, says Johnny. But I know Downy Flake only makes cake donuts. No glazed, no Boston cream, no jelly. Why are they lying? I eat supper with Mummy and the Littles at New Claremont, but that night I am hit with the migraine again. It's worse than the one before. I lie in my darkened room. Scavenger birds peck at the oozing matter that leaks from my crushed skull. I open my eyes and Gat stands over me. I see him through a haze. Light shines through the curtain, so it must be day. Gat never comes to Windmere, but here he is, looking at the graph paper on my wall, at the sticky notes, at the new memories and information I've added since I've been here, notes about Grand's dogs dying, Grandad and the Ivory Goose, Gat giving me the Moriarty book, and aunts fighting about the Boston house. Don't read my papers, I moan. Don't. He steps back. It's up there for anyone to see. Sorry. I turn on my side to press my cheek against the hot pillow. I didn't know you were collecting stories. Gat sits on the bed, reaches out, and takes my hand. I'm trying to remember what happened that nobody wants to talk about, I say, including you. I want to talk about it. You do? He is staring at the floor. I had a girlfriend two summers ago. I know. I knew all along. But I never told you. No, you didn't. I fell for you so hard, Katie, there was no stopping it. I, I know I should have told you everything, and I should have broken it off with Raquel right away. It was just, she was back home, and I never see you all year, and my phone didn't work here, and I kept getting packages from her, and letters, all summer. I looked at him. I was a coward, Gat says. Yeah, 
It was cruel to you and to her too. My face burns with remembered jealousy. I am sorry, Katie, Gat goes on. That's what I should have said to you the first day we got here this year. I was wrong and I'm sorry. I nod. It is nice to hear him say that. I wish I weren't so high. Half the time I hate myself for all the things I've done, says Gat. But the thing that makes me really messed up is the contradiction. When I'm not hating myself, I feel righteous and victimized, like the world is so unfair. Why do you hate yourself? And before I know it, Gat is lying on the bed next to me. His cold fingers wrap around my hot ones and his face is close to mine. He kisses me because I want things I can't have, he whispers. But he has me. Doesn't he know he already has me? Or is Gat talking about something else, something else he can't have, some material thing, some dream of something? I am sweaty and my head hurts and I can't think clearly. Mirren says it'll end badly and I should leave you alone, I tell him. He kisses me again. Someone did something to me that is too awful to remember, I whisper. I love you, he says. We hold each other and kiss for a long time. The pain in my head fades a little, but not all the way. I open my eyes and the clock reads midnight. Gat is gone. I pull the shades and look out the window, lifting the sash to get some air. Aunt Carrie is walking in her nightgown again, passing by Windmere, scratching her too thin arms in the moonlight. She doesn't even have her shirling boots on this time. Over at Redgate, I can hear Will crying from a nightmare. Mommy, Mommy, I need you! But Carrie doesn't hear him, or else she will not go. She veers away and heads up the path toward New Claremont. Giveaway, a plastic box of Legos. I've given away all my books now. I gave a few to the littles, one to Gat, and went with Aunt Bess to donate the rest to a charity shop on the vineyard. This morning, I rummaged through the attic. There's a box of Legos there, so I bring them to Johnny. I find him alone in the cuddle-down great room, hurling bits of Play-Doh at the wall and watching the colors stain the white paint. He sees the Legos and shakes his head. For your tuna fish, I explain. Now you'll have enough. I'm not going to build it, he says. Why not? Too much work, he says. Give them to Will. Don't you have Will's Legos down here? I brought them back. Little guy was starved for them, Johnny says. He'll be happy to have more. I bring them to Will at lunch. There are little Lego people and lots of parts for building cars. He is ridiculously happy. He and Taft build cars all through the meal. They don't even eat. That same afternoon, the liars get the kayaks out. What are you doing? I ask. Going round the point to this place we know, says Johnny. We've done it before. Katie shouldn't come, says Mirren. Why not? asks Johnny. Because of her head, shouts Mirren. What if she hurts her head again and the migraines get even worse? God, do you even have a brain, Johnny? Why are you yelling, yells Johnny. Don't be so bossy. Why don't they want me to come? You can't come, Cadence, says Gat. It's fine if she does. You can come, Cadence, says Gat. It's fine if she comes. I don't want to tag along when I'm not wanted, but Gat pats the kayak seat in front of him and I climb in. I do not really want to be separate from them, ever. 
We paddled the two-person kayaks around the bayside under Windmere to an inlet. Mummy's house sits on the overhang. Beneath it is a cluster of craggy rocks that almost feels like a cave. We pull the kayaks onto the rocks and climb to where it's dry and cool. Mirren is seasick, though we only though we were only in the kayaks for a few minutes. She is sick so often now, it's no surprise. She lies down with her arms over her face. I half expect the boys to unpack a picnic. They have a canvas bag with them, but instead Gat and Johnny begin climbing the rocks. They've done it before, I can tell. They're barefoot and they climb to a high point, 25 feet above the water, stopping on a ledge that hangs over the sea. I watch them until they are settled. What are you doing? We are being very, very manly, Johnny calls back. His voice echoes. Gat laughs. No, really, I say. You might think we are city boys, but the truth is we are full of masculinity, full of masculinity and testosterone. Are not? Are too? Oh, please, I'm coming up with you. No, don't, says Mirren. Johnny baited me, I say. Now I have to. I begin climbing in the same direction the boys went. The rocks are cold under my hand, slicker than I expected. Don't, Mirren repeats. This is why I didn't want you to come. Why did you come then, I ask. Are you going up there? I jumped last time, Mirren admits. Once was enough. They're jumping? It doesn't even look possible. Stop, Katie. It's dangerous, says Gat. And before I can climb farther, Johnny holds his nose and jumps. He plummets feet first from the high rock. I scream. He hits the water with force, and the sea is filled with rocks here. There is no telling how deep or shallow it is. He could seriously die doing this. He could... But he pops up, shaking the water off his short yellow hair and whooping. You're crazy, I scold. Then Gat jumps, whereas Johnny kicked and hollered as he went down, Gat is silent, legs together. He slices into the icy water with hardly a splash. He comes up happy, squeezing water out of his t-shirt as he climbs back onto the dry rocks. They're idiots, says Mirren. I look up at the rocks from which they jump. It seems impossible anyone could survive, and suddenly I want to do it. I start climbing again. Don't, Katie, says Gat. Please don't. You just did, I say, and you said it was fine if I came. Mirren sits up, her face pale. I want to go home now, she says urgently. I don't feel well. Please don't, Katie. It's rocky, calls Johnny. We shouldn't have brought you. I'm not an invalid, I say. I know how to swim. That's not it. It's, it's just not a good idea. Why is it a good idea for you and not a good idea for me? I snap. I am nearly at the top. My fingertips are already beginning to blister with clutching with clutching the rock. Adrenaline shoots through my bloodstream. We were being stupid, says Gat. Showing off, says Johnny. Come down, please. Mirren is crying now. I do not come down. I am I am sitting knees to my chest on the ledge from which the boys jumped. I look at the sea churning beneath me. Dark shapes lurk beneath the surface of the water, but I can also see an open space. If I position my jump right, I will hit deep water. Always do what you are afraid to do, I call out. That's a stupid-ass motto, says Mirren. I told you that before. 
I will prove myself strong when they think I am sick. I will prove myself brave when they think I am weak. It's windy on this high rock. Mirren is sobbing. Gat and Johnny are shouting at me. I close my eyes and jump. The shock of the water is electric, thrilling. My leg scrapes a rock, my left leg. I plunge down, down to rocky, rocky bottom, and I can see the base of Beechwood Island, and my arms and legs feel numb, but my fingers are cold. Slices of seaweed go past as I fall, and then I am up again and breathing. I'm okay. My head is okay. No one needs to cry for me or worry about me. I am fine. I am alive. I swim to shore. Sometimes I wonder if reality splits. In Charmed Life, that book I gave Gat, there are parallel universes in which different events have happened to the same people. An alternate choice has been made or an accident has turned out differently. Everyone has duplicates of themselves in these other worlds. Different selves and different lives, different luck, variations. I wonder, for example, if there's a variation of today where I die going off that cliff. I have a funeral where my ashes are scattered at the tiny beach. A million flowering peonies surround my drowned body as people sob in penance and misery. I am a beautiful corpse. I wonder if there's another variation in which Johnny is hurt, his legs and back crushed against the rocks. We can't call emergency services and we have to paddle back in the kayak with his nerves severed. By the time we helicopter him to the hospital on the mainland, he's never going to walk again. On another variation in which I don't go with the liars in the kayak, in the kayaks at all. I let them push me away. They keep going places without me and telling me small lies. We grow apart bit by bit and eventually our summer ideal is ruined forever. It seems to me more than likely that these variations exist. That night I wake cold. I've kicked my blankets off and the window is open. I sit up too fast and my head spins. A memory. Aunt Carrie crying bent over with snot running down her face, not even bothering to wipe it off. She's doubled over. She's shaking. She might throw up. It's dark out, and she's wearing a white cotton blouse with a wind jacket over it, Johnny's blue-checked one. Why is she wearing Johnny's wind jacket? Why is she so sad? I get up and find a sweatshirt and shoes. I grab a flashlight and head to cuddle down. The great room is empty and lit by moonlight bottles litter the kitchen counter. Someone left a sliced apple out and it's browning. I can smell it. Marin is here. I didn't see her before. She's tucked beneath a striped afghan, leaning against the couch. You're up, she whispers. I came looking for you. How come? I had this memory. Aunt Carrie was crying. She was wearing Johnny's coat. Do you remember Carrie crying? Sometimes. But summer 15, when she had that short haircut... No, says Marin. How come you're not asleep? I ask. Marin shakes her head. I don't know. I sit down. Can I ask you a question? Sure. I need you to tell me what happened before my accident and after. You always say nothing important, but something must have happened to me besides hitting my head during a nighttime swim. Uh Uh-huh. Do you know what it is? Penny said the doctors want it left alone. You'll remember it in your own time and no one should push it on you. But I am asking, Mirren, I need to know. She puts her head down on her knees, thinking, What is your best guess? 
she finally says. I, I suppose I was the victim of something. It is hard to say these words. I suppose that I was raped or attacked or some godforsaken something. That's the kind of thing that makes people have amnesia, isn't it? Mirren rubs her lips. I don't know what to tell you, she says. Tell me what happened, I say. It was a messed up summer. How so? That's all I can say, my darling Katie. Why won't you ever leave Cuddle Down? I ask suddenly. You hardly ever leave except to go to the tiny beach. I went kayaking today, she says. But you got sick. Do you have that fear? I ask. That fear of going out? Agoraphobia? I don't feel well, Katie, says Mirren, defensive. I am cold all the time. I can't stop shivering. My throat is raw. If you felt this way, if you felt this way, you wouldn't go out either. I feel worse than that all the time, but for once I don't remember but for once I don't mention my headaches. We should tell Bess then, take you to the doctor. Marin shakes her head. It's just a stupid cold I can't shake. I'm being a baby about it. Will you get me a ginger ale? I cannot argue anymore. I get her a ginger ale, and we turn on the television. In the morning there is a tire swing hanging from the tree on the lawn of Windmere. The same way one used to hang from the huge maple in front of Claremont. It is perfect. Just like the one Granny Tipper spun me on. Dad, Granddad, Mummy, like the one Gat and I kissed on in the middle of the night. I squashed into that Claremont swing together. We were much too big to fit. We elbowed each other and rearranged ourselves. We giggled and complained, accused each other of having big asses, accused each other of being smelly and rearranged again. Finally, we got settled. Then we couldn't spin. We were jammed so hard into the swing that there was no way to get it moving. We yelled and yelled for a push. The twins walked by and refused to help. Finally, Taft and Will came out of Claremont and did our bidding. Grunting, they pushed us in a, in a wide circle. Our weight was such that after they let us go, we spun faster and faster, laughing so hard we felt dizzy and sick. All four of us liars. I remember that now. The new swing looks strong. The knots are tied carefully. Inside the tire is an envelope. Gat's handwriting. For Katie... I open the envelope. More than a dozen dried beech roses spill out. Once upon a time, there was a king who had three beautiful daughters. He gave them whatever their hearts desired, and when they grew of age, their marriages were celebrated with grand festivities. When the youngest daughter gave birth to a baby girl, the king and queen were overjoyed. Soon afterward, the middle daughter gave birth to a girl of her own, and the celebrations were repeated. Last, the eldest gave birth to twin boys, but alas, all was not as one might hope. One of the twins was human, a bouncing baby boy. The other was no more than a mouseling. There was no celebration. No announcements were made. The eldest daughter was consumed with shame. One of her children was nothing but an animal. He would never sparkle, sunburnt, and blessed the way members of the royal family were expected to do. The children grew and the mouseling as well. 
He was clever and always kept his whiskers clean. He was smart and more curious than his brother or his cousins. Still, he disgusted the king and he disgusted the queen. As soon as she was able, his mother set the mouseling on his feet, gave him a small satchel in which she had placed a blueberry and some nuts, and sent him off to see the world. She set out he did, for the mouseling had seen enough of courtly life to know that he should stay home and he would always be a dirty secret, a source of humiliation to his mother and anyone who knew of him. He did not even look back at the castle that had been his home. There, he would never even have a name. Now he was free to go forth and make a name for himself in the wide, wide world. And maybe, just maybe, he'd come back one day and burn that fucking place to the ground. And that'll do it for this reading of E. Lockhart's We Were Liars. Thank you so much for listening here at Carla Reads the Classics. Until next time. Let's keep it moving with E. Lockhart's We Were Liars, Part 4. Look, a fire. There, on the southern tip of Beechwood Island, where the maple tree stands over the wide lawn, the house is alight, the flames shoot high, brightening the sky. There is no one here to help. Far in the distance, I can see the vineyard firefighters making their way across the bay in a lighted boat. Even farther away, the woods whole fire boat chugs toward the fire that we set. Gat, Johnny, Mirren, and me. We set this fire and it is burning down Claremont. Burning down the palace, the palace of the king who had three beautiful daughters. We set it. Me, Johnny, Gat, and Mirren. I remember this now. In a rush that hits me so hard, I fall and I plunge down, down to rocky, rocky bottom and I can see the base of Beechwood Island and my arms and legs feel numb, but my fingers are cold. Slices of seaweed go past as I fall and then I am up again and breathing and Claremont is burning. I am in my bed in Windmere in the early light of dawn. It is the first day of my last week on the island. I stumble to the window wrapped in my blanket. There is new Claremont, all hard modernity and Japanese garden. I see it for what it is now. It is a house built on ashes. Ashes of the life Granddad shared with Gran. Ashes of the maple from which the tire swing flew. Ashes of the old Victorian house with the porch and the hammock. The new house is built on the grave of all the trophies and symbols of the family. The New Yorker cartoons, the taxidermy, the embroidered pillows, the family portraits. We burned them all on a night when Granddad and the rest had taken boats across the bay. When the staff was off duty and we liars were alone on the island, the four of us did what we were afraid to do. We burned not a home, but a symbol. We burned a symbol to the ground. The cuddle-down door is locked. I bang until Johnny appears, wearing the clothes he had on last night. I'm making pretentious tea, he says. Did you sleep in your clothes? Yes. We set a fire, I tell him, standing in the doorway. They will not lie to me anymore. Go places without me. Make decisions without me. I understand our story now. We are criminals, a band of four. 
Johnny looks me in the eyes for a long time but doesn't say a word. Eventually, he turns and goes into the kitchen. I follow. Johnny pours hot water from the kettle into teacups. What else do you remember? He asks. I hesitate. I can see the fire, the smoke, how huge Claremont looked as it burned. I know, irrevocably and certainly, that we said it. I can see Mirren's hand, her chipped gold nail polish holding a jug of gas for the motorboats, Johnny's feet running down the stairs from Claremont to the boathouse, Granddad holding on to a tree, his face lit by the glow of a bonfire. No, correction, the glow of his house burning to the ground. But these are memories I've had all along. I just know where to fit them now. Not everything, I tell Johnny. I just know we set the fire. I can see the flames. He lies down on the floor of the kitchen and stretches his arms over his head. Are you okay? I ask. I'm fucking tired if you want to know. Johnny rolls over on his face and pushes his nose against the tile. They said they weren't speaking anymore. He mumbles into the floor. They said it was over and they were cutting off from each other. Who? The aunties. I lie down on the floor next to him so I can hear what he's saying. The aunties got drunk night after night. Johnny mumbles as if it's hard to choke the words out and angrier every time screaming at each other staggering around the lawn granddad did nothing but fuel them we watched them quarrel over grand's things and the art that hung in Claremont but real estate and money most of all granddad was drunk on his own power and my mother wanted me to make a play for the money because I was the oldest boy she pushed me and pushed me I don't know to the bright to, the, to, to be the bright young heir, to talk badly of you as the eldest, to be educated white, to be the educated white hope of the future of democracy, some bullshit. She'd lost granddad's favor and she wanted me to get it so she didn't lose her inheritance. As he talks, memories flash across my skull, so hard and bright they hurt. I flinch and put my hand over my eyes. Do you remember any more about the fire? He asks gently. Is it coming back? I close my eyes for a moment and try. No, not that, but other things. Johnny reaches out and takes my hand. Spring before summer 15, Mummy made me write to Granddad. Nothing blatant. Thinking of you and your loss today, hoping you are well. I sent actual cards, heavy cream stock with Cadence and Claire Eastman printed across the top. Dear Granddad, I just rode in a 5K bike ride for cancer research. Tennis team starts up next week. Our book club is reading Bride's Head Revisited. Love you. Just remind him that you care, said Mummy, and that you're a good person, well-rounded, and a credit to the family. I complained. Writing the letter seemed false. Of course I cared. I love Granddad, and I, I did think about him, but I didn't want to write these reminders of my excellence every two weeks. He's very impressionable right now said Mummy. He's suffering, thinking about the future. You're the first grandchild. Johnny's only three weeks younger. That's my point. Johnny's a boy and he's only three weeks younger. So write the letter. I did as she asked. On Beechwood, summer 15, the aunties filled in for Grand, making slumps and fussing around Granddad as if he hadn't been living alone in Boston since Timber died in October. But they were quarrelsome. They no longer had the 
glue of Gran keeping them together, and they fought over their memories, her jewelry, the clothes in her closet, her shoes even. These affairs had not been settled in October. People's feelings had been too delicate then. It had all been left for the summer. When we got to Beechwood in late June, Bess had already inventoried Grand's Boston possessions and now began with those in Claremont. The aunts had copies on their tablets and pulled them up regularly. I always loved that J-tree ornament. I'm surprised you remember it. You never helped decorate. Who do you think took the tree down? Every year I wrapped all the ornaments in tissue paper. Martyr, how are the pearl earrings, Mother? Here are the pearl earrings Mother promised me. The black pearls, she said I could have them. The aunts began to blur into one another as the days of summer ticked past. Argument after argument, old injuries were rehashed and threaded through new ones. Variations. Tell Granddad how much you love the embroidered tablecloths, Mummy told me. I don't love them. He won't say no to you. The two of us were alone in the Windmere kitchen. She was drunk. You love me, don't you, Cadence? You're all I have now. You're not like Dad. I just don't care about tablecloths. So lie. Tell him the ones from the Boston house, the cream ones with the embroidery. It was easiest to tell her I would, and later I told her I had. But Bess had asked Mirren to do the same thing, and neither of us begged Granddad for the fucking tablecloths. Gat and I went night swimming. We lay on the wooden walkway and looked at the stars. We kissed in the attic. We fell in love. He gave me a book with everything, everything. We didn't talk about Raquel. I couldn't ask. He didn't say. The twins have their birthday July 14th, and there's always a big meal. All 12 of us were sitting at the lawn table on the lawn outside Claremont. Lobsters and potatoes with caviar. Small pots of melted butter. Baby vegetables and basil. Two cakes, one vanilla and one chocolate, waited inside on the kitchen counter. The littles were getting noisy with their lobsters, poking each other with the claws and slurping meat out of the legs. Johnny told stories. Mirren and I laughed. We were surprised when Granddad walked over and wedged himself between Gat and me. I want to ask your advice on something, he said. The advice of youth. We are worldly and awesome youth, said Johnny, so you've come to the right end of the table. You know, said Granddad, I'm not getting any younger, despite my good looks. Yeah, yeah, I said. Thatcher and I are sorting through my affairs. I'm considering leaving a good portion of my estate to my alma mater. To Harvard? For what, Dad? asked Mummy, who had walked over to stand behind Mirren. Granddad smiled. Probably to fund a student center. They put my name on it out front. He nudged Gat. What would they call it, young man, eh? What do you think? Harris and Claire Hall? Gat ventured. Pah! Granddad shook his head. We can do better than John. We can do, we can do better. Johnny? The Sinclair Center for Socialization, Johnny said, shoving zucchini into his mouth. And snacks, put in Mirren. The Sinclair, the Sinclair Center for Socialization and Snacks. Granddad banged his hand on the table. I like the ring of it. Not educational, but appreciated by everyone. I'm convinced. I'll call Thatcher tomorrow. My name will be on every student's favorite building. You'll have to die before they build it, I said. True. But won't you be proud to see my name up there when you're a student? You're not dying before we go to college, said Marin. We won't allow it. Oh, if you insist, Granddad speared a bit of lobster tail off her plate and ate it. 
We were caught up easily, Marin Johnny and I, feeling the power he conferred in picturing us at Harvard, the specialness of asking our opinions and laughing at our jokes. That was how Granddad had always treated us. You're not being funny, Dad, Mummy snapped, drawing the children into it. We're not children, I told her. We understand the conversation. No, you don't, she said, or you wouldn't be humoring him in that way. A chill went around the table. Even the littles quieted. Carrie lived with Ed. The two of them bought art that might or might not be valuable later. Johnny and Will went to private school. Carrie had started a jewelry boutique with her trust and ran it for a number of years until it failed. Ed earned money and he supported her, but Carrie didn't have an income of her own and they weren't married. He owned their apartment and she didn't. Bess was raising four kids on her own. She had some money from her trust, like Mummy and Carrie did, but when she got divorced, Brody kept the house. She hadn't worked since she got married, and before that, she'd only been an assistant in the offices of a magazine. Bess was living off the trust money and spending through it. And Mummy, the dog breeding business, doesn't pay much, and Dad wanted us to sell the Burlington house so he could take half. I knew Mummy was living off her trust. We, we were living off her trust. It wouldn't last forever. So when Granddad said he might leave us his money to build Harvard a student center and asked our advice, he wasn't involving the family in his financial plans. He was making a threat. A few evenings later, Claremont cocktail hour. It began at 6 or 6.30, depending on when people wandered up to the hill to the big house. The cook was fixing supper and had set out salmon mousse with little flowery crackers. I went past her and pulled a bottle of white wine from the fridge for the aunties. The littles, having been down at the big beach all afternoon, were being forced into showers and fresh clothes by Gat, Johnny, and Mirren at Redgate, where there was an outdoor shower. Mummy, Bess, and Carrie sat around the Claremont coffee table. I bought wine glasses for the aunts and granddad entered. So, Penny, he said, pouring himself bourbon from the decanter on the sideboard. How are you and Katie doing at Windmere this year with the change of, with the change of circumstances? Bess is worried you're lonely. I didn't say that, said Bess. Carrie narrowed her eyes. Yes, you did, Randad said to Bess. He motioned for me to sit down. You talked about the five bedrooms, the renovated kitchen, and how Penny's alone now and won't need it. Did you, Bess? Mummy drew breath. Bess didn't reply. She bit her lip and looked out at the view. We're not lonely, Mummy told Grandad. We adore Windmere, don't we, Katie? Grandad beamed at me. You okay there, Cadence? I knew what I was supposed to say. I'm more than okay there. I'm fantastic. I love Windmere because you built it specially for Mummy. I want to raise my own children there and my children's children. You are so excellent, Grandad. You are the patriarch and I revere you. I am so glad I'm a Sinclair. This is the best family in America. Not in those words, but I was meant to help Mummy keep the house by telling my grandfather that he was a big man, that he was the cause of all our happiness, and by reminding him that I was the future of the family. The all-American Sinclairs would perpetuate ourselves, tall and white and beautiful and rich, if only he let Mummy and me stay in Windmere. I was supposed to make Grandad feel in control when his world was spinning because Gran had died. I was to beg him by praising him, never acknowledging the aggression behind his question. 
My mother and her sisters were dependent on granddad and his money. They had the best education, a thousand chances, a thousand connections, and still they ended up unable to support themselves. None of them did anything useful in the world, nothing necessary, nothing brave. They were still little girls trying to get in good with daddy. He was their bread and butter, their cream and honey too. It's too big for us, I told granddad. No one spoke as I left the room. Mummy and I were silent on the walk back to Windmere after supper. Once the door shut behind us, she turned on me. Why didn't you back me with your grandfather? Do you want us to lose this house? We don't need it. I picked the paint, the tiles. I hung the flag from the porch. It's five bedrooms. We thought we'd have a bigger family. Mummy's face got tight, but it didn't work out that way. That doesn't mean I don't deserve the house. Mirren and those guys could use the room. This is my house. You can't expect me to give it up because Bess had too many children and left her husband. You can't think it's okay for her to snatch it from me. This is our place, Cadence. We've got to look out for ourselves. Can you hear yourself? I snapped. You have a trust fund. What does that have to do with it? Some people have nothing. We have everything. The only person who used the family money for charity was Gran. Now she's gone and all anyone's worried about is her pearls and the ornaments and her real estate. Nobody is trying to use their money for good. Nobody is trying to make the world any better. Mummy stood up. You're filled with superiority, aren't you? You think you understand the world so much better than I do. I've heard Gat talking. I've seen you eating up his words like ice cream off a spoon. But you haven't paid bills. You haven't had a family, owned property, seen the world. You have no idea what you're talking about, and yet you do nothing but pass judgment. You are ripping up this family because you think you deserve the prettiest house. Mummy walked to the foot of the stairs. You go back to Claremont tomorrow. You tell Granddad how much you love Windmere. Tell him you want to raise your own kids spending summers here. You tell him. No, you should stand up to him. Tell him to stop manipulating all of you. He's only acting like this because he's sad about Grand. Can't you tell? Can't you help him or get a job so his money doesn't matter or give the house to Bess? Listen to me, young lady. Mummy's voice was steely. You go and talk to Granddad about Windmere or I will send you to Colorado with your father for the rest of the summer. I'll do it tomorrow. I swear, I'll take you to the airport first thing. You won't see that boyfriend of yours again. Understand? She had me there. She knew about me and Gat. And she could take him away. Would take him away. I was in love. I promised whatever she asked. When I told Granddad how much I adored the house, he smiled and said he knew someday I'd have beautiful children. Then he said Bess was was a grasping wench and he had no intention of giving her my house. But later, Marin told me he'd promised Windmere to Bess. I'll take care of you, he'd said. Just give me a little time to get Penny out. Gat and I went out on the tennis court in the twilight a couple nights after I fought with Mummy. We tossed balls for Fatima and Prince Philip in silence. Finally, he said, have you noticed Harris never calls me by my name? No. He calls me young man. Like, how was your school year, young man? Why? It's like if he called me Gat, he'd be really saying, how was your school year, Indian boy whose Indian uncle lives in sin with my pure white daughter? Indian boy I caught kissing my precious cadence. You believe that's what he's thinking? 
He can't stomach me, said Gat. Not really. He might like me as a person, might even like Ed, but he can't say my name or look me in the eye. It was true. Now that he said it, I could see it. I'm not saying he wants to be the guy who only likes white people, Gat went on. He knows he's not supposed to be that guy. He's a Democrat. He voted for Obama. But that doesn't mean he's comfortable having people of color in his beautiful family. Gat shook his head. He's fake with us. He doesn't like the idea of Carrie with us. He doesn't call Ed, Ed. He calls him Sir, and he makes sure I know I'm an outsider every chance he gets. Gat stroked Fatima's soft, doggy ears. You saw him in the attic. He wants me to stay the hell away from you. I hadn't seen Granddad's interruption that way. I'd imagined he was embarrassed at walking in on us. But now, suddenly, I understood what had happened. Watch yourself, young man. Granddad had said. Your head, you could get hurt. It was another threat. Did you know my uncle proposed to Carrie back in the fall? Gat asked. I shook my head. They've been together almost nine years. He acts as a dad to Johnny and Will. He got down on his knees and proposed, Katie. He had the three of us boys there and my mom. He decorated the apartment with candles and roses. We all dressed in white and we brought this big meal from this Italian place Carrie loves. He put Mozart on the stereo. Johnny and I were all, Ed, what's the big deal? She lives with you, dude. But the man was nervous. He'd bought a diamond ring. Anyway, she came home and the four of us left them alone and hid in Will's room. We were supposed to all rush out with congratulations, but Carrie said no. I thought they didn't see a point of getting married. Ed sees the point. Carrie doesn't want to risk her stupid inheritance, Gat said. She didn't even ask Granddad. That's the thing, said Gat. Everyone's always asking Harris about everything. Why should a grown woman have to ask her father to approve her wedding? Granddad wouldn't stop her. No, said Gat. But back when Carrie first moved in with Ed, Harris made it clear that all the money earmarked for her would disappear if she married him. The point is, Harris doesn't like Ed's color. He's a racist bastard, and so was Tipper. Yes, I like them both for a lot of reasons, and they have been more than generous letting me come here every summer. I'm willing to think that Harris doesn't even realize why he doesn't like my uncle, but he dislikes him enough to disinherit his eldest daughter. Gat sighed. I love the curve of his jaw, the hole in his t-shirt, the notes he wrote to me, the way his mind worked, the way he moved his hands when he talked. I imagined then that I knew him completely. I leaned in and kissed him. It still seemed so magical that I could do that and that he would kiss me back, so magical that we showed our weaknesses to one another, our fears and our fragility. Why didn't we ever talk about this? I whispered. Gat kissed me again. I love it here, he said. The island, Johnny and Marin, the houses and the sound of the ocean. You, you too. Part of me doesn't want to ruin it, doesn't want to even imagine that it isn't perfect. I understood how he felt, or thought I did. Gat and I went down to the perimeter then and walked until we got a wide flat rock that looked over the harbor. The water crashed against the foot of the island. We held each other and got halfway naked and forgot for as long as we could every horrid detail of the beautiful Sinclair family. Once upon a time, there was a wealthy merchant who had three beautiful daughters. He spoiled them so much that the younger two girls did little all day but sit before the mirror, gazing at their own beauty and pinching their cheeks to make them red.
One day the merchant had to leave on a journey. What shall I bring you when I return? He asked. The youngest daughter requested gowns of silk and lace. The middle daughter requested rubies and emerald. The eldest daughter requested only a rose. The merchant was gone several months. For his youngest daughter, he filled a trunk with gowns of many colors. For his middle daughter, he scoured the markets for jewels. But only when he found himself close to home did he remember his promise of a rose for his eldest child. He came upon a large iron fence that stretched along the road. In the distance was a dark mansion, and he was pleased to see a rosebush near the fence bursting with red blooms. Several roses were easily within reach. It was a work of it was the work of a minute to cut a flower. The merchant was tucking the blossom into his saddlebag when an angry growl stopped him. A cloaked figure stood where the merchant was certain no one had been a moment earlier. He was enormous and spoke with a deep rumble. You take from me with no thought of payment? Who are you? The merchant asked, quaking. Suffice it to say, I am one from whom you steal. The merchant explained that he had promised his daughter a rose after a long journey. You may keep your stolen rose, said the figure, but in exchange give me the first of your possessions you see upon your return. He then pushed back his hood to reveal the face of a hideous beast, all teeth and snout, a wild boar combined with a jackal. You have crossed me, said the beast. You will die if you cross me again. The merchant rode home as fast as his horse could carry him. He was still a mile away when he saw his eldest daughter waiting for him on the road. We got word you would arrive this evening, she cried, rushing into his arms. She was the first of his possessions he saw upon his return. He now knew what price the beast had truly asked of him. Then what? We all know that beauty grows to love the beast. She grows to love him despite what her family might think for his charm and education, his knowledge of art and his sensitive heart. Indeed, he is a human and always was one. He was never a wild boar, jackal at all. It was only a hideous illusion. Trouble is, it's awfully hard to convince her father of that. Her father sees the jaws and the snout. He hears the hideous growl whenever Beauty brings her new husband home for a visit. It doesn't matter how civilized and erudite the husband is. It doesn't matter how kind. The father sees a jungle animal, and his repugnance will never leave him. One night, summer 15, Gat tossed pebbles at my bedroom window. I put out my head to see him standing among the trees, moonlight glinting off his skin, eyes flashing. He was waiting for me at the foot of the porch steps. I have a dire need for chocolate, he whispered, so I'm raiding the Claremont pantry. You coming? I nodded, and we walked together up the narrow path, our fingers entwined. We stepped around to the side entrance of Claremont, the one that led to the mudroom filled with tennis rackets and beach towels. With one hand on the screen door, Gat turned and pulled me close. His warm lips were on mine. Our hands were still together, there at the door to the house. For a moment, the two of us were alone on the planet. With all the vastness of the sky and the future and past spreading out around us, we tiptoed through the mudroom and into the large pantry that opened off the kitchen. The room was old-fashioned with heavy wooden drawers and heavy shelves for holding jam and pickles back where the house was built. 
back when the back when the house was built. Now it stored cookies, cases of wine, potato chips, root vegetables, seltzer. We left the light off in case someone came into the kitchen, but we were sure Granddad was the only one sleeping at Claremont. He was never going to hear anything in the night. He wore a hearing aid by day. We were rummaging when we heard voices. It was the aunts coming into the kitchen, their speech slurred and hysterical. This is why people kill each other, said Bess bitterly. I should walk out of this room before I do something I regret. You don't mean that, said Carrie. Don't tell me what I mean, shouted Bess. You have Ed. You don't need money like I do. You've already dug your claws into the Boston house, said Mummy. Leave the island alone. Who did the funeral arrangements for mother, snapped Bess. Who stayed by dad's side for weeks? Who went through the papers, talked to the mourners, wrote the thank you notes? You live near him, said Mummy. You were right there. I was running a household with four kids and holding down a job, said Bess. You were doing neither. A part-time job, said Mummy. And if I hear you say four kids again, I'll scream. I was running a household too, said Carrie. Either of you could have come for a week or two. You left it all to me, said Bess. I'm the one who had to deal with dad all year. I'm the one who runs over when he wants help. I'm the one who deals with his dementia and his grief. Don't say that, said Carrie. You don't know how often he calls me. You don't know how much I have to swallow just to be a good daughter to him. So damn straight I want that house, continued Bess, as if she hadn't heard. I've earned it. Who drove mother to her doctor's appointments? Who sat by her bedside? That's not fair, said mummy. You know I came down. Carrie came down too. To visit, hissed Bess. You didn't have to do all that stuff, said mummy. Nobody asked you to. Nobody else was there to do it. You let me do it and never thanked me. I'm crammed into Cuddle Down and it has the worst kitchen. You never even go in there. You'd be surprised how run down it is. It's worth almost nothing. Mother fixed up the Windmere kitchen before she died and the, and the bathrooms at Redgate, but Cuddle Down is just as it ever was. And here you two are begrudging me compensation for everything I've done and continue to do. You agreed the drawings for Cuddle Down. You agreed to the drawings for Cuddle Down, snapped Carrie. You wanted the view. You have the only beachfront house, Bess, and you have all Dad's approval and devotion. I think that would be enough for you. Lord knows it's impossible for the rest of us to get. You chose not to have it, said Bess. You chose Ed. You chose to live with him. You chose to bring Gat here every summer. When you know he's not one of us, you know the way Dad thinks. And you not only kept running around with Ed, you bring his nephew here and parade him around like a and, and, and parade him around like a defiant little girl with a forbidden toy. Your eyes have been wide open all the time. Shut up about Ed, cried Carrie. Just shut up, shut up. There was a slap. Carrie hit Bess across the mouth. Bess left, slamming doors. Mummy left too. Gat and I sat on the floor of the pantry holding hands, trying not to breathe, trying not to move while Carrie put the glasses in the dishwasher. And that will do it for this reading of E. Lockhart's We Were Liars. Thanks so much for joining me here at Carla Reads the Classics. Until next time. Thank you.